Hi, uh, this is John and Eleanor Mumford speaking from uh, the West Country of England, where currently we're living. And uh, Menno and Marion have invited us to come and share with you, and we are delighted to do so. Uh, you probably know that we are a chief among the fans of the Vin Benelux. And um, often uh, visited, we? and we've often visited, and both the Stroiks and now uh, Marion and Menno have become great friends of ours. And uh, what you may not know, all of you, because you may not have a way of measuring it, but the truth is, they, amongst all the other national directors in the vineyard, we meet together every now and then, they, what you won't know is perhaps that they are greatly loved by that group and they come and provide, a, they make a great contribution to what we call Vineyard Global, which is all the, the vineyard family around the world. And amongst the leaders, they are much loved and trusted and we're grateful to you for lending them to us. And for training them so well. And, <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. knocking them into shape. Absolutely. Um, they've said to us, would we tell you a little bit about our own story with the vineyard? Which, uh, of course, we're thrilled to do, delighted to do. Um, uh, and assuming you don't want to cancel breakfast, lunch and dinner but listen to us round the clock, uh, which we can do we very easily, do. Oh, yeah. I promise you. Oh, yeah. um, perhaps the place to start is just a little bit of our own personal background. I grew up in a Christian family, and um, truth to tell, I have no recollection of life without Jesus. We read the Bible together as a family, we worshipped together, we um, prayed together. And then at about 13, 14, around about that age, of course, I had to make a decision for myself. So I, I, I distinctly, I was at a boarding school, one of those British institutions called a boarding school, and in my own room, a sort of like a small prison cell, and a desk at the far end. And I remember reading my Bible and getting down on my knees, right at my desk, and asking Jesus to come in and to reign and rule in my life, or whatever language, I can't remember the language. But what I do remember is as I got up, having finished that prayer, I had, I can only describe it as I had a, a sense of purpose. I, I, I had a sense I've now got something, or technically someone, to live for. And honestly, that has never, uh, or now 300 years later, <laughs> That feeling has never left me. Of course, later I had a great sense of my God's forgiveness for me, a great sense of God's love for me, and all that sort of stuff. But at the time, I remember thinking, now I've got a purpose, mm. I've got something to live for. Mm. And I'm so, so grateful for that. I was then, uh, had the privilege of being discipled by various people um, who were fantastic and taught me the scriptures and taught me um, uh, what it meant to share Jesus. We sometimes call it in the trade evangelism, um, to care for people, to pastor them and so on. And I had a wonderful training in that. And then um, it was going to, actually it was going to be a doctor. And then, because my father was, I'm going to follow him into that. My brother is, my sister married one. However, I then switched to what we call pastoral ministry. 
and, um, and then worked in a couple of churches in the Church of England. And towards the end of that, um, a friend said, I was happening to go to America for a conference, and this friend said to me, whom I trusted, he said, slightly strangely, he said, don't come back from America until you've met John Wimber. Well, I had never heard of John Wimber. I had no concept of how big America was. Anyhow, <laughs> I jumped on a plane when I'd finished the conference on the East Coast and flew to California. All I had was a telephone number. And um, anyhow, I ended up in this thing called a vineyard. And to start with, to be absolutely honest with you, to start, and some of you may have had that experience, <laughs> to start with, I just didn't know what I had. I just didn't know what I had arrived in. Even maybe a cult, you know, because that such things happen in California if they don't happen anywhere else in the world. And I remember distinctly uh, going, they were meeting at the time on a Sunday in a school gymnasium. And I remember uh, we, the worship was wonderful. I, I wasn't used to it. It was new, but it was wonderful if a tiny bit, you know, for an Englishman, a tiny bit sort of uh, uh, invasive. In your face. In your face, evasive. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then um, Wimber preached beautifully from the scriptures. I remember that. Because he'd been playing the piano. That's right. He'd been, he was one of the worship team. He played the piano. He got up, and grabbed his Bible and just started teaching the scriptures. Excellent. And then at the end, he did what they called ministry. So he prayed a prayer, and suddenly um, all heaven broke out. And, you know, I'd never seen anything. And you've got to imagine a rather stuffy Englishman abroad, you know, with his... I mean, I'd, I'm not sure. I, I probably was wearing a jacket and tie in California, you know. And I had an umbrella with me because I didn't know that it didn't rain in California. That it only ever had the sun shining. But I didn't know that. So, um, and all around me, people were being filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was coming upon them, and they were falling over or, or slumping back into their chairs. And I, I, even to this day, I can close my eyes, I remember that scene. I would describe it as with two Bs. All I could see was bodies and Bibles just strewn around the floor. And of course, I was deeply sceptical that this was emotional overload. So, of course, the easiest people to interview were the ones... Well, I was just inquisitive. I, I wasn't trying to prove anything. I was just inquisitive. So the easiest ones to interview were the ones who were lying flat on the floor, you see. So I'd go up and they'd be lying there with their eyes closed. I'd go up and tap them on the shoulder and say, excuse me, why are you lying on the floor? And I... Consistent, you know, is it... Did you come here this evening planning to do this? You know, it's... Saturday evening you go to the cinema... Sunday evening you go to church and lie on the floor. I mean, is that how, is, is that how your life works? No, 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 it doesn't. And then gradually, as I talked with these people, all the feedback I got was, this is wonderful. Are you, I would say to them, are you embarrassed? Which was code for, I'm embarrassed, you should be. And uh, they said, no, not at all. Isn't Jesus is wonderful. And, you know, I got reports of people saying, you know, I, the Spirit of God came on me and I reacted however I reacted. But as a result, I love Jesus more. Or I can't stop telling my friends about Jesus. Or I'm now praying for people who are sick and seeing much more than, you know, than I used to and all that sort of stuff. So it rattled my cage. But on the other hand, there was something about it that was irresistible. I couldn't, I didn't like it, actually. <laughs> because it was rather too sort of 
as she said, in your face, but it was riveting. And then I remember having several long conversations with John Wimber while we were there. We'd started lunch on one day at about midday and finished, I think, at five o'clock in the evening. And I was firing all my questions at, at him. But I couldn't, you know, he, I just, I mean, he frequently referred to the scriptures and the Bible, which is what I'd grown up with and was... Um, it was important. It was very, very important. And anyhow, just at that point, <coughs> excuse me, just at that point, Wimber was beginning to come with teams to uh, the, initially the United Kingdom and to England, but at the invitation of Anglican and Catholic and Baptist ministers. And then he started doing conferences and, and teams would come. And when teams came, we, at the time we were living right in the centre of London, very close to Westminster Abbey, right in the centre. And, of course, when they came through London, if they weren't actually ministering, they had time on their hands to either to go shopping or to, come, or to have meals together. So we just became friends. But, again, it never occurred to me... Whoops, sorry, I've hit the camera. It never occurred to me that we would... You know, they would be anything other than friends. When you meet people from other parts of the body of Christ, you enjoy them, and, but you don't ever really think of, well, maybe I ought to join that group. But... Gradually, over a period of time, the Lord started to speak to us, the two of us, mm. about uh, being part of the vineyard, which, quite honestly, for me, because of my background in the Church of England, which I'd grown up in, uh, that wasn't really very good news. So I, I think God probably started to speak to you first, mm. but I was you know, a bit like Jim Carrey in that film. You know, I was sticking my fingers in my ear and going, la, 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 you know, much to say I don't really want to hear. And then eventually God made it crystal clear, crystal clear that this is what we were to do. Mm. And um, so at that point, I remember we, uh, I, I prayed, I fasted, I sought the Lord, I um, brushed my teeth, I put on a clean shirt and tie and went to see Wimber and took a deep breath. said, uh, Mr Wimber, I think God has called us to plant a vineyard, very intense, plant a vineyard in the United Kingdom. He just looked at me and he smiled. He said, well, I don't. <laughs> so that began a long process. It was crushing, but always delightful and friendly and kind. I mean, it wasn't at all unfair. But it was just at that point, he wasn't interested in planting churches outside North America, the US and Canada. But then people like us and Jan Bernard and Tineke Strike and others started knocking on the door and saying, can we, can we play too? Can we, can we be part of the vineyard? And that was the point, wasn't it, if I can butt yeah. in? That was the point at which he said to us, look, uh, why don't you just come and hang out with us? Just come and catch. He kept saying, this thing is caught, not taught. Come and hang out with us and spend a few weeks here and anything we've got, you can take. You can have anything you like. I mean, they were incredibly Very kind Very and constantly generous to us. So we went out for sort of six weeks and we stayed for 19 months. I mean, we couldn't tear ourselves away. 
And they were extremely kind and generous and, and encouraging. And John went on the staff as an assistant pastor and then helped started to help with the church planting office, as it then was. Which was fascinating. Which was a fascinating That's a very, very good training. It was very, very good training. But it was interesting because just to backpedal a tiny bit, the, um, John had already been to Anaheim in the early 80s, and then a couple of years later we went out there together. And we were at that point working in a Church of England in the middle of London, you know, stained glass, organ, uh, pews, all that stuff. That you and would, loving it. And, and loving that it. always was. Always had loved it. That was where we were going to spend our whole lives. And we were so thrilled to be doing so. And, um, however, we went to visit together, do you remember? Yes. And we arrived in this extraordinary place. Because, again, California was so alien to us. And it was just a warehouse with a corrugated roof. And it was huge. Ugly, ugly building. Ugly, ugly warehouse. You'd think they were sort of dealing carpets or something. However, we went in and there was carpet for miles. <laughs> as far as the eye could see. And more chairs than any man could number. I mean, it was huge. And it was so different from our stained glass and pews and, you know, Gothic church in the middle of London. And you remember, we looked at each other and we just started to cry. And we said, Lord, we've come we've home. Come home. Well, We've come home. And over the last 30 years or more, I'm sure many of you will be saying the same, when we first encountered the vineyard, not the only church or the best and all of that, but we just knew in our hearts that we had come home. And this was where God had called us. And he had called us to go. So that's where we went and, and that's where we started to train, wasn't it? And we did that for... Uh, best part of two years. The best part of two years. Mm. And then... In June 1987, uh, they laid hands on us, and they sent us back, and we arrived at Heathrow Airport in London, and we were a, a, a great threat <laughs> to the United Kingdom. We were a church-planting team of four, uh, Eleanor and myself, and our two boys, who at that stage were aged six years, and the other one was six months old. And that was the team that started, and we moved to southwest London. Uh, if you know it at all, near a place called Wimbledon, where a little tennis is played from time to time. When they're allowed to. When they're allowed to. And uh, that's where we, we started, and we just started, a bit like many of you have started churches, you, with a small group, and worshipping together, and praying together, and doing the things that Jesus did. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because we started, we all came home, the four of us, in June, and we prayed together and we sang and worshipped together for a couple of months. And then we opened our doors. We were in a borrowed home at the time. And nine people came. We were beside <laughs> ourselves. We were thrilled excited. a bit. It was just amazing. And the next week? Eight. Eight people, yeah. yeah. So Church shrinkage. Church shrinkage right from the start. Right from the beginning. And they were very kind to us because at Anaheim they gave us, they, uh, Wimber sent us home with our, he paid for our airfares to come home and he gave us enough money for one month, which was of course very generous but quite hair-raising. And uh, he said, you remember, he said, if this is the Lord and we think it may be, then the rest will come. And so John went out and got a, a job, didn't you, working with a friend who had a financial business, and John helped to set up his database and office. Yes, and so some of the sort of admin stuff. administrative stuff. Which I did... Um, um, 18 months of it? Yes. So we were bivocational. Um, and then evenings and weekends was when we uh, 
started to gather people. And we gathered, we had one group on a, on a Thursday evening, and then that grew, which was wonderful, eventually. It started to grow, and then we went to a and Tuesday evening, and then we had to go and do a Wednesday as well, at which point we were running three groups, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday consecutively, which was punishing, really, but wonderful. But it was for a good way a to start, just to, you know, to get the thing started. Day. And it was interesting, because the third group we started... Uh, it didn't really grow quite as fast as the other ones had in numbers, but it, my goodness, it grew in in affection for one another and fellowship and in quality, if not in quantity. And it was a sweet, it was a lovely, lovely group. It was. And then I went to a conference. Wimber was doing a conference in a place called Brighton, which That's was right. on the south coast. And at the conference, um, some Catholic students from a university in London, very near us, were introduced to him, and Wimber said, "Let me. You need to meet John and Eleanor Mumford because they're just starting a small church in uh, near, near where your university is." So anyhow, we connected with them, invited them. They were lovely. And of course, they all turned up at our group, but they—I mean, you know what student young people are like? They charge in. They're like a herd of um, I guess say elephants. They're like, you know, they come in the oh, locusts. They come and they eat all the chocolate biscuits. They swallow all the coffee. Tickle they, over all the chairs. They tickle over all the chairs. And I remember uh, there were four or five of them, delightful. And I remember after one of the group, maybe it's the second time all these students came, a woman came up to me she, in, the, in the kitchen afterwards. And she was so cross, she was shaking. And she said, John, you've ruined our group. And I said to her, you're absolutely right. So we that, have. So we have. But what choice do we have? And, and it was, it was and she said, you're right. You're because right. one of the things we did say to the Lord when we started out guilelessly, we said, Lord, we will minister to anybody that you bring across our doorstep. And that was quite a profound prayer to pray because the Lord did bring all sorts of people across the doorstep. And not least these remarkable Catholic students. And we suddenly realised this vineyard thing goes right across the churches. It was wonderful, wasn't it? And, and they, they those, were with us, what, for two or three years? Oh, yes. And while they were students? students one of them became head of um, Young People Catholic Renewal Group that went out eventually right across the world. I mean, he had a, this extraordinary ministry developed. He married and had this ministry. And one of the others became the personal assistant to the Archbishop of Westminster, who's the head, the cardinal, the head of the Catholic, Catholic Church, Church. In the UK. In the UK. And we suddenly realised, Lord, you've given us something here that is so precious and so particular and is to be... Given shared away. and given away anywhere. It was great. Which, uh, a theme you will not be unfamiliar with. You will have heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that's how we started. And then the, the, the God bless us with growth, um, both in terms of the church expanding, but also beginning to plant churches around uh, mainly the UK, a little bit in uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, now in Wales. Um, all this sounds, uh, it all sounds a little bit heroic. Well, it's a dangerous sounding heroic. It isn't. That's not how we think of it, and that's not the case. We were simply doing what God called us to yeah, do in exactly the same way yeah. you're doing what God's told you to do. Mm. So it's absolutely no different. It just looks, you know, it comes, it emerges differently in different nature, nations at different times with different people. But from, from all, all we were concerned to do was, as it were, to get up off our knees and say, Lord, we've got you to live and die for. Uh, how can you, you know, John Wimber used to talk about us being coins in God's pocket. 
In other words, that we would have he he would be he would have change in his pocket, and he would just spend us whenever and wherever he want he God wanted to, and that's exactly how it was. And you know, goodness me, how we ended up doing this uh, is a great mystery. And you poor people in Benelux who got stuck listening to us. I mean, poor. I mean, whoever whoever thought that would happen? You might be saying, what a pity. <laughs> Sometimes I'll finish with this. Um, we can take a, in about uh, five minutes, ten minutes. We're going to take a break so that you can recover, have a you know strong, a strong cup of coffee because I know then uh, your part of the world strong coffee is very very important to you. And then uh, we'll come back after the break. People, let me just finish with this. People sometimes ask us. They may ask you. What is it you find so attractive, so, can I say, irresistible about the vineyard? What is it? What is it? And I think uh, we would, uh, we would, uh, are you going to argue with me? Not quite yet. Not yet, okay. No, I have things to say. Uh, 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 what is it that drew us, drew our hearts to it? Because it wasn't a, you know, a particularly slick operation. Yeah. It wasn't... Uh, there wasn't strong marketing. They made absolutely no attempt to recruit us. In fact, quite the opposite. And I think I mentioned to you that, you know, it wasn't as if Wimber pushed us away, but he wasn't, if the Lord hadn't spoken to him, he wasn't going to. And if the God hasn't spoken to him about people joining, he wasn't going to, you know, let us join. And, he, and nor would and this, we join until the Lord spoke to him. To him. So, that was very important. I mean, authority is very, very, yeah. we are people under authority yeah. as the centurion said mm. to Jesus and um, I believe in leadership and mm. and um, obeying your leaders and mm. doing what doing what you're instructed and told because you we trust them mm. so um, anyhow the things that we did find very very attractive were of course the worship we were very used and you will have heard this many times we in our tradition were very used to singing songs to one another about God and one of the, which is valid and great, but, but the, the new dimension that we discovered was that the, the simple songs of expressing our love directly to the Lord was, was just, was and is wonderful. It's probably, may I just interrupt? Yeah. One of the most transforming things, because when John went out to Anaheim for the first time in 82, <laughs> I didn't because one of our little ones was terribly small. Um, and he came back, absolutely transformed by the music he'd heard. Yeah. So much so that he even started singing all the time, which isn't, you would be not, yes. so it's so not, it's not yours. Again, it's not something you'd want to experience you know, very often by singing. chief among your gifts. But he couldn't not sing. And it was these incredible songs. That, it was the Psalms, it was singing to the Lord about how amazing he was. And it was just so I sing a simple song, song of love, love to you, Jesus. To my Saviour. To my, my Saviour. I'm Jesus. grateful for the things you've done. done. Just so sweet. And that was, I suppose, the first thing that most changed the way you saw things. Um, another thing that I found irresistible was, and I think I alluded to it earlier, was that, you know, for all the differences of this strange, what initially was a strange new church, for all the differences, there was so much in common. And I particularly highlight the use of the scriptures. Uh, John Wimber and his colleagues and his team, people like Bob and Penny Fulton, Carol Wimber herself, 
They were, you know, you they were Bible people. prick them and they bleed Bible. Yeah. They were people of the scriptures. Mm. And that's what we loved and that's what we grew up with and that's, those were our convictions. So it wasn't like some lunatic group that had sort of spun off, started maybe with the scriptures and then spun off into the ozone. Not they at all. They kept coming back. They kept they? coming and still do. And, and long, 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 may we do it and may you do it in uh, the rest of Europe. So the worship, the scriptures... This whole idea of, uh, of what we call in shorthand ministry, by which I really mean us praying, come Holy Spirit, and then standing aside and letting God do what God wants to do. And often when you start that, you, you never know where it's gonna, what God is going to do and where it's going to end up. Mm. But the idea of letting, as Wimber used to say, letting God run his church, <laughs> let God be God. And the idea that God would speak and so words of knowledge and uh, uh, prophetic words and healing and all that whole stuff, collection of stuff in the New Testament was handled in such a mature way and, and that, that was what we loved and we saw the reality of it. Uh, personally, I never, ever, ever thought I'd ever be able to prophesy or ever have a word of knowledge. I just didn't think I was good enough, quite honestly. I didn't think I was holy enough. I knew lots of people like her who were very godly. <laughs> and, um, you know, she, Eleanor would prophesy and have words, and I just didn't, didn't think, oh, you know, I could do the admin. <laughs> and then God started to use me. And I would have bits of information, and sometimes it would be wrong, but sometimes it would be bang on mm. and that was a wonderful thing and mm. bound up in that was and again what we learned from the vineyard people in california what was bound up with that was compassion mm. so there wasn't the ministry was tempered or saturated in compassion so there wasn't judgmentalism there wasn't a rebuke if you were unwell and needed healing there was no you know well you, it must be your sin or it must be you know mm. you must have done something wrong or you're just a bad person or you're lacking in faith mm. there was none of that it was like let's see what god wants to do and uh, there's some wonderful things um, another thing, another thing, the vineyard I, we, I found irresistible was um, coming from an ancient denomination of the Church of England, which I, as I said, I loved and still love. I'm very, 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 very Most grateful of our to dear, it. Dear friends. And yes, many, many of our dearest friends mm. in the UK are working. God has called them to that. So there's no question of we're better than them or indeed worse than them. But, but um, I wasn't always like that. And one of the things Wimber taught me was uh, to love the whole church. Mm. And that has been such a magnificent release and discovery mm. that God mm. loves the whole lot. Mm. <laughs> he, he even loves you in Benelux. Absolutely. And that is so exciting. And it's such a privilege to be part of it. And, and it continues to be a privilege. Think, Lord, how do we... Oh, this is magnificent. And the, the, the colleagues that God has given us at the moment, our job is to work largely with different national directors around the world. But to have friends like um, Marion and Menno and Jan Bernard and Tineke and Fleming and Anne in the vineyard in Denmark and Martin and Georgia in the vineyard in uh, Germany, Austria and Switzerland. 
you know, to have these teams and our friends in the States. You know, God has given us a wonderful team of mm. colleagues. Uh, Lord Nelson, Horatio Nelson, who was a famous uh, British admiral in the um, Napoleonic Wars, uh, he said, I, I had the good fortune to command a band of brothers. That's where the phrase first came from. And the, the sense of collegiality, the sense of doing this together with the Lord and with your brothers and sisters was, a, was and is one of the greatest gifts and one of the greatest treasures we have. And that's, what we do, that's one of the things we discovered in the vineyard. Of course, just the equipping of ordinary people, equipping the saints for works of ministry, and basically, I mean, basically, Wimber shuffled into our lives, and basically he said, anybody can do this. Mm. And we yeah. hadn't, yeah. we'd heard leaders say things, but not, not say anything, not, as, deliver, like not that. deliver like that, and literally giving it away. Mm. Mm. And if, if this is any use to you, go take whatever you have of ours, go and do it better. And he, he said that, and he did it, and he really meant it. And mm. that's a very, uh, uh, that was a wonderful, uh, that was a wonderful thing. Mm. Mm. Okay, I, I've more or less finished. So just before we take a break, um, if, uh, and you go and get a cup of coffee, um, you, here's a question you might like to ponder and to think about and maybe to share in your groups. What, what for you, what was it that drew you into the vineyard? And you know, Cliss, what, what is it that you find most attractive or most irresistible? Why can't you get away from it? Well, yes, why, why can't you escape? Uh, uh. <laughs> you know, try a jailbreak, <laughs> tunnel out of the vineyard, uh. cut, the, cut the barbed wire to get out. But what, what is it, no joking apart, what is it that Holds for you... you uh, has been the, maybe the greatest gift that, the, that God has given you through the vineyard. Mm. And we'll see you after the break. Bye. Well, welcome back. I hope you feel fortified from your few minutes off. And uh, it's now my turn to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that I think that the Lord may have been pointing out or emphasising to us in the vineyard over this rather strange season in which we find ourselves. And I just suggest one or two things to you, if I may. Um, we are locked down, or we have been, in a farm in the West Country. I think John mentioned it, which is incredibly beautiful, of course. And there are worse places to be. We have our grandchildren around us, and that is huge fun. We've been celebrating their birthdays, it seems, never-endingly. And uh, recently we had a party on the lawn just before the rule of six came in. So now, of course, we couldn't. But then we did. The day before, we had this party with all the children come. And it was a five-year-old's birthday party. And they all went home at the end with a party bag. Now, I don't know if that's something that you would do or whether it's very archaic or very English. However, they all went home with a party bag of bits and pieces. And if it doesn't sound terribly tenuous and a little bit trite... I wondered what was it that in our party bag, what is it that you would want to take home from a time spent together like this, however different it is from usual? And I would like to suggest that as we all take off and go back to our various places, there are three things particularly that we want to take with us, three things with which to stash our party bag. And the first, of course, is the promises of God. And John talked about it a little bit. The promises of God. 
The scriptures are stuffed with fabulous, take-it-to-the-bank, iron-cast promises which constantly fortify us. And we've never needed that more. Now, you will have your own favourite verses, even if you like your life verses. And certainly, I've found in this season, during the coronavirus thing, over the last seven months we've been here, I have found myself enjoying more than, possibly more than ever before, the scriptures and the promises of God. And I was out walking this morning, actually, on the fields, and there was the brightest, most beautiful rainbow we've had in a long time. And I thought, you know, Lord, for all that's going on, nothing changes. It's just as it ever was. You are seated in the heavenlies, and we are all right. And your rainbow over us is your promise. Anyway, call me a little fanciful, but it was my moment, my experience just a few hours ago. There are times, aren't there, when certain verses stand out for us particularly. And I want you to remind you of one that the Lord gave me. It was probably about 33 years ago now when John and I came home from Anaheim and started doing this vineyard thing. We've been on the staff with John for nearly two years, as I think we mentioned. And we came home and uh, we landed at Heathrow and off we went. And one of the things I did want to say, if I didn't want to interrupt, but... Never, ever, ever will you underestimate the part that your family can play in this church planting business. Young families, people with children, swinging in the playground, hanging out at the school gate. And whenever we were telling our story, like we just have been doing a little, um, our boys, when they were quite small, would cheer up up. Oh, but it's us too. It was us too. We were there. We were there. And you know, that's the truth. They were so important a part of our church planting endeavour. And let me just remind you again why it's so precious. These Bible verses are so important because the scriptures are our gold standard in the vineyard. That's what we always loved about Wimber. The scriptures are our gold standard. They are magnetic north. They are our plumb line. They're what Moses said to the people of Israel. These are not just words. They are your very life. And sure enough, they've been our very life. And so it was that when we started out, the Lord pinpointed to me Isaiah 27, and verses two and three, where he says, I sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. And you know, I honestly think that is God's promise for us. That's the rainbow, if you like, over the vineyard. Because we believe, do we not, that the vineyard is very precious to the Lord. And as we've all often said, This is not the only church. It's not the biggest church. It's not the best church. And in terms of church through the ages, we're very young. In terms of the church universal, we're very small. But we are a distinct part of the church that the Lord put together over 40 years ago now in California. Wimber himself famously said this, the vineyard is but a thread in a great tapestry, but it is a thread of God's weaving. More recently, Don Williams, who is very elderly now, but probably the movement's most outstanding theologian, he reminded us that the vineyard has been given a sacred trust. We really have, and I wanted to remind you of it, to fortify you through difficult days as you go on your way. You are part of a great enterprise. 
You are part of a huge adventure. You are part of something very significant in your land and in your time that the Lord has put together. And it is for us, like, I don't know, do you know Lord of the Rings? Like Frodo, protected, entrusted with the protection of the ring. It's a really precious thing. Quite recently, an American friend of ours, a man called Greg Thompson, came to speak at our National Leaders Conference. Now, John and I knew him. He was from a Presbyterian church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where one of our boys was studying at the time. And he was a marvellous, marvellous preacher, still is, fabulous. And we asked him if he would like to come and speak for us at our National Leaders thing, because he's so big on the Bible. And uh, God bless him, he took a massive gamble. He'd never been in a vineyard. And he came with his wife and he was amazing in his teaching, but he was blown away by what he experienced there. And he went back to his own Presbyterian church in uh, Charlottesville and he told them this, he said, those vineyard people, those vineyard people really do expect the presence of God to come when they ask for it. Isn't that sweet? And the other thing he said, and they seem to run towards pain. Which, if it's true, and I think it is, is as true for you as it is for us. It's as true in every part of the global vineyard at this time. We are wired to worship God and to rescue men. And there is a vein of compassion running deep, deep, deep within us. May it ever be so. May it never not be so. Was there ever a time such as this when that was more needed? Was there any time in which more to play to our strengths? So, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to hold on to and to hold high the promises of God, not least his promises over our precious vineyard. And then the second thing I would say to be aware of and to go away with or to stuff deep into your party bag, if you like, is an awareness of the presence of Jesus. One of the most wonderful promises of all is of his presence. Take it to the bank, constant, ongoing, everlasting presence. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse five. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Followed three verses later, by this Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one who said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He said it yesterday, he says it today, he will say it forever. It's the absolute assurance of his presence through thick and thin, good days, bad days, best of times, worst of times. His presence is an absolute and there was never a time, was there, when this reminder was not more needed or more welcomed or more fiercely to be embraced than during this silly, strange, weird COVID season. Everything worldwide is being shaken. Everything this side of heaven is being shaken. The tectonic plates of our world are shifting. But his presence is promised and he is in total control. So as his servants, fortified by his promises and his presence, we have our marching orders. 
Let me read them to you. Not as if you didn't know them, but I've got them in my actual Bible here. I'm very big on the physical Bible, okay? Of course, we've got our um, um, digital things and our iPads and our iPods. I do all that stuff. Of course I do. Marching around the fields this morning, listening to the Bible on my AirPods. However, there's something about this book in my hand that I love. Matthew chapter 28 that you know so well, verse 20. Jesus came to them just before he went back to heaven. And he said, all authority, how much? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then this glorious promise that comes roaring in at the end. And surely, verily, verily, absolutely, surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Superlatives all the way. Surely, always, very end. Wonderful, wonderful promise. And the ultimate promise is of his presence his actual presence, teaching them to obey everything. So given his presence, he says, go off, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, people. Talk about Jesus, people. Win the lost, people. And plant churches in which to baptize them and disciple them, the ones that you have newly won. Heal the sick, cast out demons. There is no institution this side of heaven that has that authority to cast out demons. Nobody else can do it. Bind up the brokenhearted. Visit the prisoners. Feed the hungry. Release the oppressed. Care for the downtrodden. And I long that right across the vineyard world that we would all of us grasp, we here and you there, all of us would grasp that we do have that authority. We really do. He promises us a great commission, a job to do, but he also promised us his great company. Great company associated with the great commission. And let me, if I may, just for a moment say, you know, people have said, and indeed Marin and Menno asked us to address a little bit, what does it mean in this season, this COVID season? Are we under constraints? Are we limited? Are we going to be stopped? People are saying we can't worship because we can't sing that. Really? Of course we can worship. Now, the ultimate worship, of course, is thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000. But that's heaven. That's what we're getting ready for. That's what we'll be part of one day. That's why when we're in corporate worship, we get so excited because that's a foretaste of the heaven to which we are heading. However, have you stopped to think during this time of lockdown, did David worship in thousands when he was out in the fields watching over the sheep and composing his psalms? Did Paul and Silas have thousands around them as they sang in their desperation when they were in the jail in Philippi? Did Paul, in his chains, wherever he was, did he have the company of heaven to worship alongside him? And what about that story? Do you remember Horatio Spafford, one of my favourite songs of the moment? It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And you may well know the story of the man who wrote it, Horatio Spafford. He had lost all his 
wealth, all his possessions in a huge fire in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. And so he sent his wife and his family, I think it was four little girls and a little boy, across the Atlantic ahead of him to England where they were supposed to be going. And he said, I'll sort out my things and I'll follow you. And on that voyage, the wife's ship went down and all the little girls were drowned. She, I think alone with the little boy, alone was saved. He lost all his little girls. He caught the next ship over to England. And as he crossed the point, it makes me shiver, as he crossed that point at the Atlantic where they could best pinpoint where that ship had gone down, he wrote that song. When the sea billows roll, he says, it is well, it is well with my soul. That man was on his own. He was worshipping despite everything. He had overcome all things. There is nothing that can stop us worshipping. We've been, recently we went to somewhere with, and we were led in worship. It only happened twice in the last seven months. We were led in worship by somebody at the front. We were all wearing masks, humming into our masks. And yet, you know, there was something about it. Because worship is the heart. It's your heart longing to get out. And we can hum, or we can, as I've been doing, walk out on the fields and sing loudly when no one can hear us, which is amazing. Or we can listen to worship and we can listen to music in our own places, in our own way, in our own time. So don't, of course we long to be back together. Of course we long to lay hands on each other. Of course, of course, of course. But don't think you can't do this stuff under lockdown. Because I'm telling you, this is a great time of opportunity too. We're learning some amazing things that are happening over the internet. Do you know, I heard of somebody who'd been to a Vineyard Leaders Conference not long ago, and somebody there prayed for him. Now, he was a very, very introverted person, and he was very <sighs> cautious about the things of the Holy Spirit. But in his own words, somebody came to him, laid hands on him. He was flattened just like that by the Holy Spirit. He was the most surprised person in the world, shaken to his roots, went home in Ireland, I think, went home and cannot stop healing the sick. And because of the constraints, the constraints of COVID, and because he is a natural introvert, he gets words from the Lord and he sends people voice memos and they get healed. He is seeing healings over the phone, over and over. Don't tell him that COVID has cramped his style. I heard of another man who had responded to a, a, a talk on the screen and there was a chance at the end for people to put their faith in Jesus. And he did, he did, against all the odds, all on his own, he put his faith in Jesus. And when that church opened its doors for the first time to a little small gathering, he was the first person through the door, newly saved and desperate to find out who his new family were. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. And we hear in this country that between 50% 50 of 18 to 25-year-olds are praying on the internet. That's massive. Alpha groups are springing up like mushrooms. 
friends of ours in New York, one man was starting a new alpha group every day. Don't for a moment think that our, of course we have to change the way we do things. But at one way, to see people, my brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. There's a gospel to preach. There's a kingdom to advance. There's the sick to be healed. There's the lost to be won. There's the poor to be cared for. Nothing has changed. And yet, everything has changed. The way we do it has to change. We have to become increasingly imaginative, creative. And you know, if I might say so, I think the vineyard is very well poised for that. We're a very young way of doing church. We're very, I hope, we're still at that point. The cement is not yet set. We're still at that point where we can be flexible. We're still at that point where we can pivot, which is, of course, what the Jesuits always used to teach. The Jesuits used to say you need to move forward with one foot in the air so that you're ready to pivot and go anywhere. And we need to be flexible and we need to be imaginative in the way that we pursue these wonderful things. So that's my little, that's my little bit. That's all free. That is all for nothing. But basically, I want to say to you, don't, don't be too cast down and don't think that this cramps your style or changes things. The kingdom of God is still on the move. The Lord is still on the throne. Okay? So, back to what we were talking about. Promises of God, the presence of Jesus, and finally, the power of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power, said Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. From London to Amsterdam, from Edinburgh to Utrecht, from Birmingham to Brussels, from Aberdeen to Antwerp, wherever it is, it's the Holy Spirit that galvanises the church, that galvanises, that catapults her people into their streets when they can and into new ideas when they can't that gives us creativity and imagination and prayers to pray, that enables us to stand firm. I know um, the sort of strapline, if you like, for these times together for you is from Philippians about rejoicing in the Lord. And just before that, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And if it's not a little bit too fanciful. I feel very Pauline because you, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for and who I would just love to be with. We walk by faith and not by sight at the moment. Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. It's the Holy Spirit that puts a spring in our step, a song in our hearts, the wind in our sails. And we cannot do what God is calling us to do without his power. So little wonder that the oldest prayer in the Christian church has always been, come Holy Spirit, veni spiritus sanctus. And let me just tell you very quickly why we love the Holy Spirit and what he does. He convicts us. He convicts us of our sin. John 16 verses 7 to 9. I will send him to you, said Jesus. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people don't believe in me. That's the ultimate sin. It's even more so than all the ghastly things you can list, abuse and addictions and, well, not that their sins, their weaknesses and illnesses, really. But when you think of, of violence and abuse and some of the horrible things that go on, 
grievous sins. But the worst of all is not to believe in him. And it's the Lord that convicts us. Uh, we have friends in New York. We're often involved there when we can be in a little church plant in Manhattan. And uh, one of the members of that church plant has been leading an alpha group in a prison in the East River in New York. Very, very tough. All men, all gangsters, gang members, violent, so isolated that they're kept in a prison on an island in the middle of the river. And he was doing this group, God bless him. And we were all, of course, praying. And it was a terribly difficult group and there was absolutely no give. Nobody was showing any interest at all among these men. They were all very cynical, hardened criminals, very disruptive, subversive. They were like a bunch of overgrown, malevolent schoolboys. Every week we prayed for him, seemingly to little effect. Holy Spirit Day came and went. All of us were disappointed again. And in the end, the last evening came and we all of us unfurled our prayer mats yet again. I speak metaphorically. And uh, we started to pray for this evening. The first man came and he said, I can't do life anymore. I need Jesus. The second man came in, the leader of the gang, cynical, subversive, unpleasant. All right, he said, I give in him. I'll give in. I need Jesus. And at the end of the evening, our dear faithful friend said to the rest of them, is there anyone else who feels that they would like to put their trust in Jesus at this time? Every single man came to faith in Christ. Convicted of sin, the work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of our sin and then he convinces us. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you, says Jesus, into all truth. Again, John chapter 16. You see, it's such a wonderful thing how he guides us into what's true. He confirms for us what we believe. He convinces us that this is right. And we need that. We need those truths to be, oh, to be screwed into our thinking, nailed into our hearts. And it's through the scriptures and through reading them and through loving them that this will happen increasingly. The Holy Spirit convicts, he convinces us that we are right, that we are on the right path, that Jesus is who he says he is, that the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us, that God is seated on the very throne of heaven and earth is but his footstool. All in the scriptures, all the convincing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit liberates where the Spirit of the Lord is. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, there is liberty, there is freedom. I once prayed with a young woman at a conference in those days when we could pray with people and we were at conferences, and she was angry with God. Now, this is not a good thing to be and not a good place, so I would discourage it. However, it was, of course, a relationship that hadn't worked out as she hoped, and she asked me to come and pray for her. And she later wrote to me, and she wrote this, I have been haunted for this, by this for over a year. It wouldn't go away. It completely overshadowed everything else in my life. The bitterness in my heart was a weed that was strangling me. We prayed together. I asked for forgiveness for my anger. I have been completely freed. And the relief I have is stunning. Stunning. The Spirit convicts, he convinces, he liberates, he changes us. 
Samuel to Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy and you will be changed into a different person. You and I are going to pray now in about two minutes. We're going to pray and we're going to ask the Spirit of God to come. And he can change you. I mean, we hear about spectacular changes in people's lives, transformations as they come to faith in Jesus through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. But even as we pray now over the internet, can you believe we can be changed from feeling weak to feeling strong, from feeling frightened to becoming fearless, from feeling ourselves tongue-tied to finding ourselves fluent, from cowering in a wine press like Gideon to braving the battlefield to which we are called, from being dead ordinary to being quite extraordinary. And then, of course, the other one is the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He comes upon us. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, we read in Judges chapter 15, he became, for what was an absolute weakling, he was turned into a warrior. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, who was, of course, a notorious sinner, but he became the saviour of his people as he pulled down the pillars of the temple on the Philistines. And then, of course, Paul, he went to, from, when he arrived in Ephesus, he placed his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. And most supremely, of course, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one. He is amazing. He does empower us. He does help us. He does bring us all that we most need. So it would be a dereliction on my part if I were not to pray right now that he would do some of these things for you. And so, my brothers and sisters, if you're happy to, why don't you join me and we'll pray together just for a few minutes. Amazing, isn't it, that we can? Amazing. And that God is not fooled by all this. Do you know on the words, I will pray, but I just remembered what God has said to me over and over, almost daily, he says this to me, the Lord is not mocked. He is not mocked. He has not been caught out by this. He's not confounded by this. He has not lost the plot, as we say. He's not taken his eye off the ball. He is where he's always been, centred on the throne, in the centre of the universe, in the command of all things. So with that confidence and with that comfort and with the promises of God, and the presence of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. I want you to go away encouraged. Strengthened, as the Anglican prayer book says, in your most holy faith. So why don't we pray? Come, Holy Spirit, come. Precious, life-giving, powerful Spirit of God, would you come? And Lord, in these moments, would you fall upon, come upon, deeply invade the lives of every man, woman, child, I don't know, that has been listening to this for the last hour or so. 
all of you to whom God has been calling, all of you who are part of the vineyard, all of you for whom the Lord has such ambition. Would the Lord come right now, Holy Spirit come. Bless my brothers and sisters. And Lord, I pray that where there is a need for healing, in this moment you would come and you would heal. And let me encourage you because this isn't, this isn't weird, this does happen. If you're struggling with headaches or migraines or problems with your eyesight or indeed your ears, lay hands on that part of your being. If you've got somebody with you, well, that's lovely. But if not, um, lay hands on your head. Think of the stress some people are under, the stress that overtakes their heads. Pray that God, Lord, I pray that you would take captive every thought in those troubled heads to Jesus, every thought. Nor would you take control of our thinking and of our brains, of our minds. And if there are other parts of your body that are in pain or from which you're suffering, maybe skin conditions, maybe joint pain, Lay hands on that. Holy Spirit, come. Come and heal what is wrong. Any part of your anatomy, just lay your hand on your tummy. Lay your hand on your heart. Lay your hands across your chest. And invite the Spirit of God to come with his healing power. And so, Lord, I pray for your healing. I pray that you would steady our nerve in the Lord, that you would quieten our hearts, that you would break any fear that any of us are feeling, and that you would raise our eyes to new horizons, that we would see in our mind's eye, even this moment, the rainbow of your presence and of your comfort and of your company and of your encouragement and of your challenge to us. Would you bless the church? And Lord, may the church in the Benelux nations, may that church look back on this season and see it as one they could never have imagined of deepening and of growing and of expanding, increasing. Bless them, Lord God. And may the Lord bless you and keep you, my brothers and sisters. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace today and forever. And we all of us shout together, Amen, Amen and Amen.